Hello and welcome to the Biology Career Insights, the podcast where we talk with experts from the field of biology to gain valuable insights into the careers and explore ways to navigate the job market in this ever-evolving field. I'm your host, Dr. Manish Kumar. Today, we're joined by Dr. Kiran Dhilo. Uh, Dr. Dhilo is the Executive Director of the Cancer Vaccine Institute at the University of Washington in Seattle, USA. She has a PhD in genetics and completed postdoctoral training at the Fred Hutch Cancer Center, where she studied the genetics of chemotherapy resistance in breast and ovarian cancers. She was formerly the director of scientific programs for the Rivkin Center, where she oversaw funding for ovarian cancer research and supported a breast and ovarian cancer community education program. As Executive Director of the Cancer Vaccine Institute, she currently oversees organizational strategy and operations to facilitate the development of treatment and prevention vaccines for breast, ovarian, and other solid cancers. Thank you so much for joining us today, Kiran. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to speak with you. Amazing. So, you know, to start with, uh, can you tell us a little bit about your background and about your current role? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I, I knew, I'll, I'll start from when I was really young. Like when I was four years old, my grandfather told me, Kieran, you're going to be a doctor. And I was very excited by this prospect. And I kind of, my, all of my education from that really young age, I just always was drawn towards science. And, um, and I was always just always very curious about how the world worked. And um, so I moved to the United States when I was nine and um, to the West Coast of, of the U.S. where I had the opportunity to, um, uh, to join a program where I was able to take college classes through high school. And that was really fun because I got to explore a bit deeper biology than I would, you know, in high school. And even along that time, I thought I would want to be a medical doctor. I mean, that was my initial thing. But I didn't have any actual experience working with uh, patients and and um, any kind of clinical experience. And also, you know, I I mentioned the journey of the you know moving from India to the U.S. and that that process of being an immigrant. Also, I think I became a little bit more shy than I am now or than I was before. And when I did decide to get some clinical research experience, I worked as a phlebotomist for a couple of years in a lab. I realized that I was a little shy and I didn't enjoy the clinical environment. And I was like, oh no, what am I gonna do? Um, but at the same time, I really enjoyed studying human disease. And so I decided to pursue a PhD in genetics was my favorite course uh, as an undergrad and um, came to the University of Washington and um, studied a really rare uh, disorder called Berner syndrome, which is, um, uh, the characteristics are premature aging and, and, and cancer. And so, you know, after that, it was, I really enjoyed the work. I learned a lot about DNA repair and it's linked to cancer and also um, how we can exploit it for developing new therapies and the role that changes in DNA repair genes can have in resistance to drugs. Um, but I wanted to move a little bit away from basic uh, science so I did my postdoc at the Hutch where I was doing um, studying more patient samples and patient data um, on chemo resistance and breast and cancers. And all of that I, I enjoyed, but I realized I think pretty quickly that 
you know, doing bench research day in, day out, or, or even looking at what my uh, colleagues who were faculty and, and more senior were doing, it wasn't, it wasn't everything that I wanted to do. And while at the Hatch, I started getting involved in leadership roles. Um, there was this student postdoc association that I became, first became involved in and then became the chair. I helped found an organization and that helps promote um, the success and retention um, of folks, scientists who come from underprivileged backgrounds, who are underrepresented in sciences here in the United States. And, and those two things gave me the experience of what is it? How do you build programs, and how do you build programs that that meet the needs of of science and and scientists? And on the side, uh, and I mention this because I think it's so important for everyone to have a hobby or a side hustle. My side hustle was I was organizing film festival. There's a local South Asian film festival, ten day festival. I started as a ticket collector, ended up being festival director. And um, that sort of was a way for me to do something different than science, but it also inspired me to start organizing scientific symposia. Even as a postdoc, started doing local symposia. And so it's really strange how some, something that seems totally different really kind of, I, I brought the skills I learned there into what I was doing in science. So I was still a postdoc, but I was, I was finding all of these other things that I enjoyed doing. And my friends would tell me, why are you so distracted? You're doing all these other things. But the reality was that's what made me happy is to do science and do all of these other things where I was connecting with people and bringing people together. Um, and then so ultimately, you know, another thing happened while I was uh, studying chemo resistance for breast and ovarian cancers. I myself was diagnosed with breast cancer at the time. And so what I was doing became so personal and I also became really interested in um, working in advocacy and, and, and working with patients to help um, integrate them better into research and elevate kind of their needs as well. Um, and so, you know, as I was wrapping up work there, I had the opportunity to join this organization called the Rootkin Center for Ovarian Cancer. Uh, and I chose this organization because it was focused on ovarian cancer, not breast cancer, which I had been dealing with. Just, you know, I have enough expertise and it's distant enough from my own personal experience. And I joined there as the director of scientific programs, and I got a chance to network with ovarian cancer researchers all over the world. And I realized how powerful it was. You know, these kind of roles aren't necessarily kind of talked about, or even as as folks who work in academia, they're not necessarily valued. But I realized pretty quickly how powerful it is to be kind of a gatekeeper for research, at least at, at some level for this community and to be able to develop programs that really help uh, push this research forward, organizing scientific, you know, national scientific, international scientific symposia, where, you know, as organizers, you have the power of kind of shaping some of the conversation that happens. And to me, that was, it was just amazing. And as a social person I am, I just loved, can, would love going to conferences and learning about different research that was going on. and integrating other ideas and what and really learning the needs of the community to develop programs at at the center for um going to address those needs and then you know as you mentioned i was also overseeing their breast and ovarian cancer education program and i had the chance to work with a lot of breast and ovarian cancer patients and survivors and and help get information out to the general public that was scientifically sound because as i'm sure you know there's a lot of misinformation out there 
um, that could help people understand risks and signs and symptoms. And so people also feel empowered to um, go see a doctor when something is wrong and, and empowered to know their body and pay attention to their body. So that was personally fulfilling for me because of my own personal experience as well. Um, so it's been interesting how the my personal experience really has become integrated into um, into my career as well. Um, and the our scientific advisor when I was at Rudkin is a person named Dr. Nora Desis. And uh, at some point, I became aware of this opportunity of being an executive director here at the Cancer Vaccine Institute. So my training is in genetics. I am a geneticist through and through. I was very nervous about, oh, what am I going to an immunology organization? What is this going to be like? And am I going to be an imposter here? But it's been amazing. I've been here for almost three years and the organization needed somebody who could wear a lot of hats. And um, not only my role is some of it's internal facing, you know, how do we um, kind of determine our strategic priorities? How do we organize ourselves around that? How do we streamline our operations and other efforts to to be able to achieve those? Even though we're an academic institution, we're set up in many ways, like actually, uh, you know, at least a small company uh, in that way. And we, we really pay attention to bringing in uh, business practices, management practices that are academics usually ignore. Uh, but we really pay attention to that to make sure that our, our team is is taken care of. And then externally, you know, I, I spend a lot of my time working with the philanthropy team here at the University of Washington to talk to donors, to, to talk about our story and coming up with a strategy of, you know, how are we going to bring it, bring in philanthropic and foundation funds to support federal grants that we do. So a big part of that, and actually even my role at Rivkin is science communications, is, is being able to help people understand what we're trying to do, the importance of it, and you know what the long-term impact is and so i spend a lot of time thinking about how to communicate information that is i think often scientifically complex in a way that that people uh, can consume um and i work actually a lot with our internal managers to help them uh feel increase sort of the, the connectedness of the organization and one of my goals has also been to shift organizational culture where people do feel more connected and everyone feels valued, everyone knows what the mission is, everyone knows what their role is, and and that they, uh, they, they, uh, they matter. Um, and joined the organization during COVID. Uh, over the last year, I've had the chance now to actually uh, travel more and try to help build partnerships with foundations and potentially other organizations um, at conferences and things like that, and which I just love. You know, I think uh, pounding the pavement at a conference and connecting with the scientific community, the advocate community, uh, and, and others is, uh, it's something that just brings me so much joy, but that's sort of, that's my background. I don't know if that's kind of what you were looking for. Well, amazing. Amazing. You know, as uh, I can, I mean, it's, it's not only, you know, the curiosity for science that you had, I think you were also at later part of life driven by a mission, you know, like your personal health condition and everything, I think motivated you towards, you know, going in that direction, which is quite inspiring. So, Ibrahim, you know, my question to you, the next question to you would be, uh, I understand that you were like very curious about pursuing science, but did you have a visibility of what you ended up becoming, you know, at the beginning or, you know, at what point of time you realized that, you know, this is something that I want to pursue? 
when did that transition happen? And you know, because there are many, many PhD students, you know, also at a very confused state, whether they want to pursue science or they want to pursue something else. And they think they are the only ones confused. Perhaps you can highlight your journey. Yeah, absolutely. So I think there were a couple of points in my journey where I had to question what I was going to do. You know, one I mentioned where I thought I was going to be a medical doctor. And a lot of that was because my exposure, you know, I, I didn't have any PhDs in my family. Uh, was But we had doctors, right? I mean, this was common in the South Asian community. So I knew what that was. And, you know, everyone goes to see the doctor. And the only exposure just to researchers, to scientists that I had was as professors and um, I didn't actually, I did a research project as an undergrad, but it was more of a library research project and not in lab. So, so that was one decision point where I had, I pivoted from what I thought I was going to do. But I will tell you when I showed up, uh, to graduate school and I met, uh, some of my best friends that I've ever had. And I still have, I realized that this is where I was meant to be. I had found my tribe. I've been looking for these nerds my entire life, and I finally found them. People like me who saw the world in a different way, and those friendships I have are deeper than you know any other uh, friendships. So that was one where I was like, okay, I think this is good. I made the right decision. Uh, of course, it was challenging, but now you know, as sort of my career progressed and I shifted away from research to doing other things, administration, leadership. I'm not even sure exactly what to call it. Um, you know, I, I think I was following my very instinct of what made me happy and what brought me joy. And that was doing science, being involved in science and a lot of other things. And, and, you know, my postdoc was longer than the average postdoc, but while I was there, I helped create a lot of new things, a lot of new programs, a lot of, and, and that for me was also training that you don't see as a postdoc, you know, how do you, I mean, as, as we were founding this organization, we were presenting in front of the CEO of the Hutch, in front of the senior vice presidents. How do you pitch your idea and how do you, how do you get buy-in from people? And then to execute those ideas, you have to work with all kinds of different departments within an organization that are not in a lab and that you almost would never have access to from a lab. And I just saw the power in that and, and, and learned, oh, this is how you make things happen. And, and I found that to be really powerful. So, you know, mostly I just sort of followed my instinct and, um, or found what, you know, what made me happy. And I would say I had a realization that I talked to a lot of people about who are thinking about careers, just about myself as a person, probably four or five years ago. So, you know, pretty deep into my career. And that was that, like, I don't think I ever would have been successful as a bench scientist or as a faculty member. I think you have to be really happy working in a neuro space with a lot of depths, right? Like that's what science is. You're an expert in this little space, but you have very deep expertise. I am what you would call a generalist. Uh, not only, I, I mean, I think working on one problem for a long time, we're just, part. It, I just wouldn't be able to do it. I, I, I would get bored. Um, so I really liked doing a lot of these different things. And I, I realized once I learned of this term, that I was acting on just because of what made me happy, kind of developing enough expertise in different areas to be effective or dangerous, whatever you want to call it. Uh, and, and to be able to kind of connect all of these different worlds, science, administration, communication, all of the stuff. And initially, you know, what I saw as, oh, it's, it's just a distraction. Am I just easily distracted? 
I realized it's actually powerful because not everyone can do that. And so I started to see it as a strength. And that, I think realizing that has helped me kind of move into the types of roles that I have because I have, for even my past role as director of secondary programs at the nonprofit or here as executive director, I have to wear a lot of hats and I have to be able to switch between a lot of different things. Absolutely. I have to it. Yeah, deep into the science or talk to the fundraising team or talk to a donor. And um, for me, that's really fun, right? Like, I just love that. And it's also one of the hardest parts of my job, right? It's like, I get to do it because it's I love it, but it's also so hard because I really have to be aware of a lot of different things and to code switch into, into many different spaces. So Kieran, for a layman, you know, how would you explain your role as an executive director for vaccine research or cancer vaccine institute, for example, you know? And uh, and not only that, you know, and how does your work impact the scientific community and the broader public? If you can, you know, highlight those points. Absolutely. So, you know, what we're trying to do here, as you mentioned briefly earlier, is to develop vaccines for the treatment and prevention of cancer. And we are working on vaccines that in the United States affect uh, or, or include 50% of new diagnoses and 50% of the deaths. And that includes breast, ovary, colon, bladder, lung, prostate. And I mean, these are all solid tumors. And so we're set up in a way where we have a, we have a technology that, that we know that uh, we can develop vaccines that elicit the right kind of immune response, which is known as, as their kind of very inflammatory, dis, the tissue destroying immune response. And we're using that technology to develop vaccines that target multiple proteins across these different cancers. And um, that's sort of our general goal as a team and the organization is set up like this. But to be able to do that work, we need to have funding. We need to take care of the team. We need to um, communicate our work uh, to the general public and um, connect with other collaborators. So my job as executive director is really to kind of help us stay on course of we're going to stay focused. This is our strategy. This, this is how we're going to stay on course. And then seeing what are the internal operational pieces that are needed to make sure that, we, that we're doing what we're doing. So I, my hands are in every part of the organization and I do whatever it takes to keep things forward. Um, recently, I've been the PR person. You know, I worked a lot with our media relations team as we have studies that come out. Um, we do connecting with media to either talk to our leadership team or talk to media myself, you know, whatever it is to to help tell that story. So um, one of my biggest jobs is to really help elevate the profile of the entire institution and our scientists to be able to really help us achieve our, our mission, what we see as a cancer vaccine moonshot, to take our vaccines to the clinic, which we do through, we run our clinical trials, but then hopefully to approval for use for anyone who needs them. So that's that's broadly what I do and everything I do is is linked to that mission. Um, I'm also the, I would say, the team um, motivator and therapist, whatever you want to call it. Uh, make, and I, I, you know, I kind of talk about big picture and vision stuff when I talk to the team to make sure, you know, everyone gets, you're in the weeds that, you know, you're doing your thing that you do every day but make sure that people are still see how that's connected to a broader mission. And personally for me, it is really important to do mission-based work and everything I've done has been involved in that, whether it's my paid job or whether it's volunteer work, 
And so I think helping people connect to that and 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 motivate them to um, to keep going. Uh, and we're we're dealing with very difficult problems. So that's a, another big part of my job, and that's linked to what I mentioned earlier: creating a culture of a more positive culture and where people feel um, motivated and feel valued um, and feel that they're contributing to not just you know their experiments, but how they're contributing to this larger cause of developing these vaccines for people. So, and then one other piece that I do, which I did mention before is, you know, we have a lot of patients who've been through our clinical trials. So I built a patient advisory council to help them engage in our research. There's some, some of the federal grants that we write here in the United States uh, ask for, or sometimes they don't even ask, but we like to include uh, at patient advocates as members of, of the team who would, hear updates and can can provide input. So um, I, I work with this uh, group to do this, and, and we're also trying to address kind of more broadly, you know, the impact on science. So of course, you can imagine the impact of developing vaccines on, on broader society, but we're also trying to deal with other issues such as, you know, in the U.S. and I'm sure other places, there are significant disparities in access to cancer care and cancer therapies for certain groups of people in the United States. African Americans, Hispanics, other minority communities, um, and so we're trying to in, in clinical trials. Notoriously, at least here in the United States, they're not very diverse. You know, it's usually um, Caucasian folks who are uh, who, who sign up for these clinical trials. So we're trying to increase recruitment of diverse communities so that not only do people have access, everyone has access to potentially cutting edge therapies, but the data that we're generating are more reflective of the general population. You know. I was very aware when I was receiving treatment that pretty much everything that I was receiving was tested mostly on on white women, you know, for breast cancer in that case, or white men too, I guess. And so um, that's that's a personal thing, but also a value here in our organization. Um, and um, in the same vein, the vaccines we develop are DNA vaccines. So these are right, more stable at room temperature and cheaper to make. Um, which is different from a lot of the new antigen vaccines that are out there. I won't go into the science, but um, developing these types of vaccines allows them to be you know, taken off the shelf and given to anybody who gets a particular cancer subtype, right? And it's a lot cheaper, and, and we hope that also helps address some of the disparities that exist in, in cancer research. So those are a few of the different areas that you know our work has impact um, internationally and, and internationally as well. Amazing. And Kiran, if you, you were to suggest, say, students, you know, who want to acquire, you know, different skill sets to to kind of perhaps become, you know, what you have become. So what what would you, your advice be for them? Uh, so two, two things, right? Um, one is be curious about other people and their careers, right? Like, um, ask people who are doing different things, how did they get there. So in, in here we call them informational interviews. And most people, I do them all the time with people, students reach out or somebody reach, reaches out. And as I progressed in my career, I've also asked people uh, to reach out, right? And that is important, not only to learn about other people, but it, it also helps you develop a network. And having a strong and wide network will always come in handy. Uh, where people will ask you for favors, and I almost always say yes because it might help somebody, and you never know when they're going to help you, right? Like, don't don't look for a benefit from that one interaction, but just kind of broadly, like, 
help other people in your network and don't start networking just when you move to the job. If you're looking for the next job and you're like, oh, I need to now network, it's too late because it, it takes a long time to cultivate those networks and, and be authentic, uh, you know, about that. Um, I'm trying to think back to the second thing I was going to say. Remind me of the question again. Yeah, the, but, but I think that's a great point that you made, you know, uh, yeah. that, you know, networking is not like asking for help, but, you know, it's about cultivating relationships, you know, yeah. so that yeah. you, you both are likely to help each other in, you know, in. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. The other thing I was going to say, the second, the second piece is um, say yes to different opportunities, you know, get out of the lab. And, and I say this for people who are interested both in academic careers and non-academic careers, because nobody, even if you want to be a principal investigator or faculty member somewhere, you do not learn how to manage people as a postdoc. You do not learn how to manage budgets. You do not learn how to, you know, get approval from different, and, but you are, it's assumed that you're going to pick up those skills. So I think it's really important to say yes to different opportunities. In my case, it was the student post postdoc advisory committee. They asked me to do a couple of things. And then eventually uh, I was uh, the, the chair of the committee for two years. And I remember the first meeting I ran, you know, sitting around a room with 20 people who were working at for leadership. I, I was nervous, you know, first couple of times, but I realized there's a skill, there's a method to do this. And those kind of unpaid volunteer opportunities um, were, uh, so helpful in kind of, you know, what the, and it helped me get to where, you know, I was, I was trying to go. Um, one of the other things I used to do or like for science communication, especially like I, I cannot emphasize how important being able to meet people where they are in their understanding of what you're trying to, uh, what you're trying to do, what you're trying to tell them is, is so key. Um, I, I took a lot of opportunities to kind of develop those skills. Um, I did an, uh, I used to do the new employee orientation. So a new employees at Fred Hodge, both uh, people who do administration might do facilities engineering or, and scientists were required to do an orientation and they would invite a scientist to come talk about their work. Uh, and you had to talk enough science that the scientists were interested, but leave folks could also understand what you're doing. And that really helped me figure out how to talk about my work in a way that was accessible. And in fact, slides that I made for that talk, I realized there's no reason that what I'm presenting to my fellow scientists, it needs to be as complicated. It really shaped how I communicated to scientists, colleagues as well. And did an, a, a, actually an internship was a business development office where I was writing uh, summaries about research to be pitched to potential investors or people who would license that technology as well. So, you know, find these different opportunities that exist. Um, and I guess the last piece of advice I would give is don't wait for opportunities to come to you. You are the driver of your life and your career. So get, you know, hold on to that steering wheel and figure out where you're going to go. And it requires work on you. Even if you have mentors, I mean, mentoring is a, it's a two way thing. You can't go to a mentor and have them expect for them to tell you what you need to do. Like you have to do a lot of things on your own and really drive your own likes and, and explore what, what different possibilities are. Those, those are the nuggets of advice I like to give young folks. No, that's, that's a great advice. I must say. Thank you. And moving next, uh, could you describe some of the biggest challenges you face in your work as an executive director and how do you overcome them? Yeah, you know, one I mentioned, which is that I have to really 
um, I have to wear a lot of different hats, which I, I, I have a lot of different roles. Uh, that can be challenging, you know, and it's also a job where there's nobody telling me where I need to do. I have to figure out my priorities, but that's something I enjoy and I like to do. So, you know, I, I just try to be a little bit thoughtful and, um, and, and plan of, you know, what it is that I, I'm trying to accomplish. But sometimes, you know, uh, one of the other jobs is I have to manage people and people are very challenging as, you know, we're all, we're all different personalities and, and, you know, how do you navigate those, um, sometimes difficult conversations on whether you're helping someone that, you know, uh, reports to you with their team or talking to somebody else, uh, th that can be really hard. And so I you know just taking on, taking training as much as I can. One of the things that I do, I mentioned bringing in practices that are um, used in other industries, whether it's management or you know organizational strategy. I talked to a lot of it here in Seattle. It was in a very tech-heavy city. Um, Microsoft is here, you know, Amazon, all of that. So I have a lot of friends who lead tools in tech, and I've spoken to a lot of them on especially management-related topics. And you know, how do you use, for example, there's philosophies using objectives and key results as a way to manage your strategy, all of this. So, you know, just learning from other people. So, and like, for me, I'm happiest when I'm learning and when I'm in a space that I've never been in before, even though it's really hard. So yeah, there are times where you have to have a very difficult conversation, but I really like solving those hard problems that most people don't like, especially when it comes to and, and, you know, interacting with, with people and, and managing people. Um, there's some weird joy I get out of working in those difficult situations, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's a lot of new, new stuff. And luckily I'm in a place where my boss and Dr. Desis, you know, we have such a great partnership. She's the director of the, the scientific director of the Institute and she, we have trust in each other. And, you know, basically she's allowed me to have this be a playground where I do bring in different approaches that are used in, in tech. And we know not everything is going to work. Um, but it's kind of fun to be able to experiment in that space. Amazing. Uh, now I think, you know, I'll switch gears a bit. Perhaps you can tell us about the most exciting developments in your field right now. And how do you see the future of, you know, your field? Yeah. So one of the most exciting things that's happened. So we've had, we have many vaccines, many different uh, DNA vaccines that target various kinds of cancers. And they're in different stages of clinical trial. Our largest program is in breast cancer. And then in both lung and ovarian cancer, we also have a clinical trials that are for all three of those diseases in phase two are our clinical trials. Um, and this last fall, you know, one of our first uh, DNA vaccines, which targets the HER2 protein, uh, which is found to be amplified in about 30% of breast cancers and actually in many other kinds of cancers, including endometrial, um, we we had data from 10 years after vaccination that got published. And what we found was that for advanced stage breast cancer patients, or mostly stage four and a few stage three, um, from the three doses we tested, all three had uh, uh, immune responses that were specific to the vaccine. And for the their best dose, 85% of advanced stage cancer patients were still alive 10 years later. For the other two doses, that number is 75%. It is so encouraging to, you know, and it's, it, it was one of the first DNA vaccines that was out there. Um, so we didn't have to do a long follow-up of, of 10 years. 
but to be able to report those results, um, the response has been overwhelming. And it's really, that vaccine is now in phase two on our um, trials in a, a, that's recruiting at, in many different places internationally. Um, and it really, I think, was very motivating uh, to see those clinical results. And we have other studies that are starting uh, completing uh, uh, maturation and then moving on to the next phase. So I am so optimistic, both as a scientist and as a cancer survivor, that the vaccines will have a huge impact on on cancer care. The other important thing is, you know, we look at, uh, you know, chemotherapy is no fun. Um, and it, there's a, there are a lot of toxic side effects, as with other types of therapies as well. And the vaccines are very sick. The, the most common side effects are similar to what you would get from the flu or COVID vaccine. And they were solved between, you know, within three to four years. So, you know, swelling at the site of injection and uh, some fever, things like that. Uh, we really don't see toxicity from these things. So, um, so we're very excited. And, um, you know, initially the earlier studies were looking at folks who had just finished treatment, had, you know, low level disease or, or no evidence of disease, vaccinate them and look for, can we prevent the cancer from coming back or can we, um, yeah, basically, you know, increase in, uh, the progression-free survival uh, in these patients. Um, now we are starting to use them actually in, in the you know, adjuvant setting. So when patients are diagnosed, they receive chemotherapy before they have surgery. Uh, in that setting, a couple of our vaccines are being tested. And our goal is, our hope is that um, we're able to adapt some of these vaccines to the preventative state. So for patients who have high risk for breast and varying other cancers because of family history or known genetic mutations or other factors that those folks or people from mammograms who are known to have um, a precancerous state called ductal carcinoma in situ, that those folks can benefit from uh, receiving the vaccine to potentially prevent disease. Uh, the way the prevention happens now is that they have a bilateral mastectomy often, um, and which is a very aggressive and, and drastic um, method. So we're looking at prevention and not just that, you know, I talked about, we've developed a method that helps us uh, develop vaccines that really destroy cancer tissue, right? Because we know how to do that. We also know how to do the opposite, which is to suppress, uh, suppress inflammation. And so we're using that technology to develop vaccines that can reduce, for example, inflammation that comes from fat tissue, which can lead to hypertension, diabetes, and breast cancer. So can we develop a prevention vaccine that targets a cause of cancer? And same thing for um, inflammatory bowel diseases that can lead to colon cancer as well. Wow. So clearly there's a lot lot of things happening in your field. And you know, that brings, and that brings me to the next question about, you know, how do you stay up to date with these latest developments in your field? And what advice would you give to biology students who want to stay informed in this field? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, one of the ways is to read papers. And um, I, I read papers relevant to cancer vaccines. I get a, you know, weekly report set from PubMed. Um, I'm not sure if you will use that in Europe or not, but um, PubMed and other sources on specific topics. And I at least skim through that. One of the things that we do here is we have subscriptions to actual paper journals that come in and um, and everybody kind of compiles the different journals we have and they get put in our mailboxes 
once you're done reading it, you give it to another person and sign off that you've seen it, which is great because you not only get kind of depths in the area of your field, but also potentially kind of related things that are that are happening as well. Um, the other piece, you know, attending talks, right? Um, so both locally here uh, on campus, and then also um, going to conferences. I think conferences are great. Uh, you can pick pick and choose about areas that you're really interested in, and then you can get exposure to totally different, you know, areas of research. And it's kind of fun to be like, oh, I want to learn about this. I'm going to go and um, attend this session. Um, and also the, the cool thing here, the reason to go to a conference in, in addition to that is like being fully immersed in a kind of broad topic, right? You know, maybe it's just an ovarian cancer conference, maybe it's an immunology conference, but they're still fairly broad. Um, that immersion and the kind of conversations that you have with people who are attending, um, it, I think it's really powerful in helping shape how do you see things and you help, you get a sense of oh, these appear to be the major problems, or this is what people are really concerned about. And that's really hard to get just from papers. Um, so I really encourage that. The other thing, you know, my PhD advisor, one of the, the most um, you know, amazing things about him was that he encouraged us not just to go for talks in our field, but you know, we were genetics, go to a biochemistry talk, go to a pathology talk, go to an astronomy talk, whatever, right? Like. And, and, you know, in those talks, you know, you take notes and you probably understand the few first few background slides, everything else is, you know, could be a different language. But it, like, I always saw that it inspired me to think about my own work in different ways. And, and I often had some of my best ideas happen while I was listening to talks on something totally different. So, um, yeah, read, go to conferences, talk to other people. Um, that's, that's, that's the advice I would give. And I can vouch for that because I met Kiran in a conference as well, right? And that's how we've been friends, yes. We've been connected ever since. You know, it's been, what, 10 years? We've been, yeah. we've been interacted through various science networking things. And an example of, of someone who is in your network that you can cultivate that relationship. And, and, and here we are. Absolutely. Uh, Kiran, uh, finally, you know, the most interesting part of the, you know, the whole whole podcast is, you know, a lot of biology students, you know, like, you know, be it bachelors, master's students, or even PhDs, you know, they are very much worried about their careers, right? So what would be that one advice that you would like to give them? And secondly, are there any career resources that you would recommend them? Yeah, so uh, the piece of advice that I would give. So one of the things for me personally that has guided my own journey is I see very few things as failure, right? Uh, when you engage in, in science and in scientific careers, often you're taught, this is the path that everybody should be taking, right? And clearly I have not taken that path. But for me at each step, even while I was figuring things out, I used every opportunity I had, whatever I was doing, um, to learn. What, what, what am I learning from this? How am I growing, you know, in, in this, uh, in this role? Um, and the second piece of advice, so so for me, you define your own success, right? Like I don't see it as, oh, I'm trying to get to this point. I, I see it as this is my journey and it's going to be really interesting, right? The other piece of advice that I actually got many years ago or I learned many years ago from a friend, from a volunteer opportunity, she was much older at the time she was in her late 60s. And she would talk about her life and that, oh, when I was in my 50s or 40s or 30s, 
And I realized that we have a lot of opportunities to reinvent ourselves. So just because you're doing something now, it doesn't mean that doors are closed for you to do something totally different, whether in science or not. And I think uh, it requires a little risk. It requires, you know, to, to be uncomfortable, but really magic happens in sort of that unknown space. And, and, uh, and, you know, you could try something and you, and you totally hate it. And so, you know, I, I would think not of like, oh, this is what I want to do when I grow up, but what do I want to be next? Um, and, you know, I will, I will be honest, you know, I think some of my cancer experience also informed that where I think I probably take, a, a, you know, a few more risks of, um, you know, my current side hustle is I paint and, and for that took a lot of courage to be like, oh, I'm going to lean into that as a, as a serious hobby, you know, and, um, am I really going to do this? Am I going to do an art show or whatever it is? Right? Like, it's just an example of like, I, I, assuming new identities at any, any stage in life, like it, it the, the possibilities are infinite. Don't limit yourself just because you're doing something now. doesn't mean that you can't do something different next. So, and don't think of it as just sort of rare. Like this is it. This is this is I'm locked into this. Um, so yes, it would be chances to reinvent ourselves. And I think it's so fun. And even things that are failures, see that as an opportunity to reinvent yourself. What version of you do you want to become next? That's a great point, Kiran. I mean, especially I like the, you know, the thing you said about, you know, success, you know, don't be kind of, you know, uh fooled by you know somebody's definition of success success is very subjective very individual and you know everybody is successful in their own kind of way so that yes and about reinventing you know about taking the courage to reinvent yourself reimagine things is i think a great career advice um are there any career guidance you know resource that you you would kind of recommend the students kiran so one thing i did do um and i think it was Maybe it was the National Science Foundation here. A national organization had many years ago, while well, I was a postdoc, there was a survey where uh, made for scientists or maybe postdocs or students where you kind of uh, do a little bit of reflection and assessment of what your skills are and what your interests are. And, um, and I wish I remembered what that survey is, but I think there are many tools out there like that um, that you can find. And because and, sometimes... You may not even, because you're so focused on science, you don't realize, oh, how these other things you're doing outside of science could potentially have impact uh, on you in a career in science as well. So I think reflecting on that and then actually finding um, people who are nodes in in networking connections. And for me, there was somebody at Brett Hatch who has been a mentor to me for a long time. She she sort of saw the scientific development for postdocs there um, and uh, she's been a link to help connect me with many different resources. So whatever institution you're at, look at what's available. And, and many institutions have those resources. Um, and also if they don't exist, create them, find them, you know, um, don't wait for it to come to you, go find it. And if it's not at your institution, there might be national or uh, international resources. Uh, for example, for postdocs here in the United States, there's a national postdoc association that has a meeting every year. And it's great. And it's a lot about professional development and um, a lot of topics that are related to postdocs, career development. Um, so look out for those opportunities. And, and and like I said, don't wait for them to come to you. Go find them. Absolutely. And I think one of the aim of uh, doing this podcast is to add, is also to add to these resources, you know, which are like, as you, as you mentioned, you know, 
I think there are limited resources, but I think, you know, we should take the responsibility of adding to those resources, you know, which will help the larger community. One of the things that I had access to um, is when I was a postdoc, there there used to be this uh, lunch and learn kind of session where they would invite a different person uh, who worked in non-traditional non-traditional careers around in academia, come and talk about their journeys. And what I learned from that, it wasn't any specific information from any one individual, but it was that there is no straight path. Everybody had their own paths to get to where they are. And I think that relieved a lot of anxiety for me, you know, early on where I was like, okay, I got to figure out what I'm going to be. It was like, it's fine. Look at, look, this person did this, and they did this, and they did this. So, you know, again, going back to the, the informational stuff, learning around where people, I think is also a great, great resource as well. And then, you know, actually also having mentors that can help you. And there are two types of mentors. Some are mentors that can, you know, will give you advice. And then there are other mentors, which are more called as sponsors. They're not just giving you advice, but can help open doors for you. So it's important to 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 find you should always have mentors, and those mentors will change as you progress in your career because your interests change. Um, so I think that is also really important, and, and they can help guide you. Um, at all of these different points in your career, you have to make a decision, right? Right. And and having someone with more experience or kind of even just having had more time in the industry or whatever it is can. Uh, help you see the pluses and minuses uh, of any particular decision that you're trying to make. Wow. So, Kiran, thank you so much for sharing your insights with us today. It's been a pleasure talking to you. You're very welcome. Thank you for having me. Thank you. And for, for the students, you know, thank you for tuning in to Biology Career Insights. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast to get the latest episodes delivered straight to your device. See you next time. Bye, Kiran. Thank you so much again.